Hello, my name is Ren Wallen, and I'm an old friend of Pastor Dick. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm not only a, an old friend, I'm a longtime friend of his. We first met back in college, way back in around 1964. Uh, that means that actually, I do indeed qualify as both longtime friend and, you know, old. He had to go out of town uh, this week and asked if I would fill in for him. So here I am. Let's pray, please. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your involvement in our lives and the desire to be in our lives and to desire our salvation and our welfare. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would anoint us as we approach your word on this topic of the victory of Pentecost, that you would quicken my mind, gloss my, my lips and tongue, and that you would also anoint the listener and the watcher, Father, their minds and their hearts to understand what the Spirit is saying to us today. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. In keeping with Pastor Dick's series of victories in the Bible, today we're going to look at the victory of Pentecost. And then to, to go right back to the beginning of Pentecost, we need to go back into the Old Testament to see what it has to say and how it gives the promise of Pentecost. This promise was given by God through the prophet Joel centuries, centuries before the birth of Christ. Here it is, the promise of Pentecost, Joel 2, 28 and 29, New American Slandered Version, 1995. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days. Now, Joel prophesied this and wrote this prophecy centuries before Jesus' birth. As a matter of fact, there were a few centuries uh, after he wrote this that, that the Old Testament was still being compiled. And then there was the 400 years of silence of the intertestamental period. And then, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He came to us. He lived his childhood. At age 12, he was presented at the temple. At 30, he became, he went into his public ministry, as all good Jewish rabbis did. At three, three and a half years of public ministry, before the, the religious leaders got tired of what he was saying and caused the riot, caused his crucifixion. And then, thank God, it didn't end there. If it had, all would be lost. But he rose triumphant on that third day. Then after his resurrection, he hung around for almost two months. And then we have a conversation of him 
just before his ascension, just before he lifts off to go back to the Father. And this is what he says. Gathering them together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Tremendous descriptive language Jesus uses here. The word translated baptized here means quite literally to dip or to be dipped. It's that simple. I guess then that we call John the Baptist, you know, John the Dipper. Jesus is telling his disciples that they are going to be dipped in the Holy Spirit. They're going to be dipped in the Holy Spirit. In those days, baptism was accomplished by immersion, not by sprinkling or pouring. And the, uh, the uh, baptized would be put down under the water uh, like the old man is going down and the new man is resurrecting. And it was a total immersion thing, to be totally immersed in water. I remember this is a little bit off the subject, but not really. When I was a young teen, my dad did everything he could to teach me how to swim. It just wouldn't take. I swam like a rock, no matter what he tried to do. If I was in five foot deep water, I could swim five feet right down to the bottom. I was swimming in a lake in South Jersey one time, and I stepped into a into a hole and I went down and I kept going down. And no matter how I went like this, I just kept going down. I couldn't touch the ground, couldn't touch bottom, couldn't break surface of the, of the water. I was totally surrounded by water, totally engulfed in it. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here being totally engulfed. You shall be engulfed in, in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We continue into verse 8, uh, telling them that you will receive power, however, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even unto the ends of the earth, every part, the remotest parts of the earth. Those were the last words that Jesus said to his disciples before he lifted up off of the Mount of Olives in his ascension back to heaven. If you and I were leaving our loved ones for an extended period of time, and we had one thing that we would say to them, we would probably pick something that is very important. I think Jesus is doing the exact same thing here. He is saying what is going to happen next. What is the most important thing for them to know right now before I leave? This is so important that I don't want you to even leave Jerusalem to start the mission to the ends of the earth until you have been endued or clothed as with a coat or a cloak. It's just like putting on a garment, a cloak, or a, or a coat uh, until you have been endued or clothed with dunamis, uh, 
power from on high. Uh, interesting enough about that word, it's a derivative of that word that uh, a guy named Nobel chose to descriptively name his new invention, AKA TNT. And if you're old enough to remember JJ on Good Times, we're talking about dynamite. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be clothed with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's that important. You need to remember this. He's telling them, don't even think about leaving Jerusalem until you are dipped in the Holy Spirit because Jesus knew what they were going to be facing. The enormity, in fact, the impossibility of the task if attempted in their own strength, that task being to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem, to all Judea, to Samaria. Notice how the concentric lines like a like lines in a, when you throw a stone into a lake are going further away to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth. He also knew the price that they were going to have to pay for th that mission's fulfillment. They were going to need supernatural ability as well as supernatural strength and fortitude to withstand what was facing them and to accomplish the enormity of the mission that was presented to them. So now let's take a look at the fulfillment of that promise in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthidians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own language speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does all this mean? But others were mocking, and saying they're full of sweet or new wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to all my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only thir the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. 
This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my bond servants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy and they shall prophesy. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now let's look at the effect that this was going to have. Look at the difference in the, uh, of power that came into the lives of these individuals. All right. On the, on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, Peter cowers before a slave girl, a servant girl, who accuses him of being with the Lord. And Peter denies vehemently that he even knows the Lord. Yet after being dipped in the Holy Spirit and clothed with dynamite from on high, he confidently stands before thousands and thousands questioning skeptic uh, outlook, onlookers. Behold, declares, boldly declaring that this Jesus whom ye crucified. That I can almost see him pointing his finger at him. This Jesus whom ye crucified. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He reversed, overturned your verdict. God did that. This Jesus whom you crucified is that Christ. Is that Christ. That's the power, friends, of Pentecost. And Luke records that 3,000 souls were swept into the kingdom, swept into the church at that day. That's the victory of Pentecost. Every disciple that was with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane that night denied, disowned, and fled from the Lord and left him standing there alone that night in the garden. And yet, after being dipped in the Holy Spirit and clothed with power from on high, every one of those disciples would eventually be tried, uh, be murdered for his sake and for the sake of his message, the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every disciple except one. John the Beloved. And it's not that they didn't try to kill him. It's just that church history tells us that John just didn't boil very well. And that brings us to our next little word. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The word translated witnesses here has through the centuries morphed into meaning what we now call martyrs. Not only were most of those to whom he was speaking martyred for, the, for his cause and to carry the message 
of the resurrection of Jesus throughout the world. But it was the beginning of a trail of blood that began back there and continues to this day. The United States Military Academy at West Point boasts of a long gray line of cadets that spans honorably, heroically, and nobly from 1802 to this very day. The Church of Jesus Christ similarly has a long red line that began with the crimson flow from the Lord's riven side, but also speaks of the blood of his saints that was shed through the centuries to bring the message of salvation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from continent to continent, from century to century, from millennium to millennium, from the first century apostolic age to this present time. They needed to be clothed, and Jesus knew this, they needed to be clothed with power to accomplish that enormous uh, task, and they needed to be endued to be able and to have the fortitude to stand in very trying and painful times as well. Here's a sobering thought. It's reported that more saints have been martyred for the cause of Christ in the last century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Now we understand why Christ realized that they needed the supernatural clothing or endowing of power from on high. Strikes me if Jesus knew that their being dipped in the Holy Spirit was imperative then, how much more it must be now. The anti-Christian clouds are gathering and thickening on our horizons. Friends, we're moving very quickly from being a post-Christian culture and world to being an anti-Christian culture and world. The signs are everywhere. The days of the world's toleration of Christianity are rapidly growing and drawing to an end. The power of Pentecost, though glorious and desired at all times, is even more imperatively needed during times of persecution and intolerance than in times of affluence and comparative acceptance such as we have enjoyed in America in our little niche of space and time. But remember, we are talking of the victory, the victory of Pentecost. And just as that power brought victory, joy and peace to the, apostle, to the apostles and has brought peace and joy and victory down through the church, throughout church history from again, century to century, generation to generation, millennium to, to millennium. So it continues to bring victory, joy and peace to his people until the Lord returns for his glorious and victorious church. The church has always done best, has always grown and prospered more during times of persecution, intolerance and adversity than it has during times of acceptance and affluence. In a real sense to coin an old overused trite phrase, the best is yet to come. And that tritism is more true 
in this context than in almost any other context that I've ever heard or can even think of. Take heart, beloved. We also have the declaration of its continuance. This is not going to go away and it's going to be all-inclusive, this promise of Pentecost. We read in 38 and 39 verses of uh, when they heard this of Acts, second chapter of Acts. Now, when the crowd heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter says to them, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And then later on, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit subsequently. For the promise, now listen to this, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall take to himself. Friends, this timeline that is given, this phrase, this promise is for you and your children. That phrase right there takes the efficacy of this promise beyond the apostolic age. Then he goes further to say, and, to the, and further down the future timeline, takes the efficacy past the apostolic age and for all who are afar off. This is not merely speaking of a geographic spread of salvation and Pentecost. The context is not speaking primarily of mileage. It's speaking of primarily, it's speaking primarily of years. It's a timeline continuation of salvation within the inclusion of Pentecost down through those generations to generations, centuries to centuries, millenniums through millenniums that we've talked about. And for however long the Lord delays his coming, and as many, even to the point of as many as the Lord our God may call to himself. Friend, this promise is not just for them. It's not for them far away. It's not for them long ago. It's for you and it's for me here now in this time and in this geographic place. Jesus has made provision for this and poured his spirit out because he knows that we need to be clothed with power to accomplish and to finish the mission to which he has called us. And because he knows, even though we don't, he knows what we will be facing and perhaps even more importantly facing in the future, what we will be facing as this age is so dramatically drawing to an end. You and I need this. It's for you and I, it's for here and now, and we need it. If God thinks we need it, I'm not gonna argue with him. Are you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the fact that you came to redeem us after we have sinned. You paid for our sins on the cross. And then you rose triumphantly that we might live triumphantly. And then when you left, you did not leave us as orphans, 
but you poured your precious Holy Spirit. You, in fact, said, I will come to you and be with you. And you poured your spirit out and you dipped us in your spirit and clothed us with power from on high that we might be capable through the power of the Holy Spirit of accomplishing the mission to spread the news of the resurrection and the salvation of your son to the ends of the world throughout space and time. Lord, I pray that you would continue this outpouring and may each and every one of us partake in it. You say we need it. We need this and therefore we must need it. Open our hearts to you, Lord, to dwell in fuller capacity to accomplish your work in us. I pray in Jesus' name.